0: From Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. In its highly anticipated preliminary ruling, the International Court of Justice stopped short of ordering a ceasefire in Gaza but will allow South Africa's case of genocide against Israel to go forward. We discussed the latest with author and historian Gerald Horn.
1: We're at an inflection point with regard to the global balance of forces. There's a kind of standoff between these two blocks, the U.S.-led imperialist block and the block of the global majority. And what happened today at The Hague helped to nudge the correlation of forces in our direction.
0: And at the Women's March 2024, Black Lives Matter activists in D.C., speak out on the link between state violence and reproductive justice.
2: Black women living east of the Anacostia River's infant mortality rate is six times higher than the district's average. For the seventh richest city in the world, Ward 7 and 8 residents, which is predominantly black, have to travel across the river or into another
0: state to seek medical attention. All that and more, coming up. Welcome to On the Ground, ground OnTheGroundShow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. First, some headlines. After more than 110 days of Israel bombing Gaza, during which at least 33,000 Palestinians have been killed, or are missing and presumed dead, and another 64,000 have been injured. The International Court of Justice announced Friday its decision on emergency provisions requested by South Africa in this genocide case brought against the apartheid state. The court stopped short of ordering an immediate ceasefire, but ordered Israel to not commit acts of genocide, specifically that Israel cannot kill, cause serious bodily or mental harm to Palestinians, or deliberately inflict on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction in whole or in part, including that Israel not impose measures intended to prevent births within the group. The court also ordered that Israel take legal action against Israelis who made statements of genocidal intent and that Israel report back to the court on its fulfillment of the orders. More on the world court's decision right after headlines with author and historian Professor Gerald Horne. In an apparent effort to strengthen Israel's case before the world court, Israel declassified and released what it called secret orders intended to illustrate that Israel did not intend to commit genocide in Gaza. One excerpt of the documents released to the New York Times quotes Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu speaking to his cabinet in mid-November 2023, saying that there was a need to quote, significantly increase the humanitarian aid in the Gaza Strip, end quote but analysts described the documents as highly curated and noted that they omit other orders and statements by Israeli officials calling for the erasure of Palestinians and the infrastructure of Gaza. Another effort to support Israel was also made by more than 60 House Democrats who joined 148 Republicans on January 23rd in condemning South Africa's genocide case against the Israeli government. In a letter to U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken, the lawmakers led by Representative Chris Smith, Republican of New Jersey, and Kathy Manning, Democrat of North Carolina, called South Africa's case, quote, grossly unfounded, end quote, echoing the Biden administration's position. Smith's office noted in a statement that the letter was backed by the American-Israel Public Affairs Committee, (APAC), a lobbying group that has enthusiastically supported Israel's assault on Gaza and smeared lawmakers pushing for a ceasefire. APAC is Smith and Manning's top campaign contributor this election cycle, according to Open Secrets. As the genocide case against Israel is moving forward in the world court, The U.S. Supreme Court refused to hear a case targeting the U.S. campaign for Palestinian rights support for the Great March of Return, which was launched in Gaza during 2018. The court's action on January 2nd marked the third straight time a federal court has dismissed this lawsuit by the Jewish National Fund, which claimed that the U.S. Campaign for Palestinian Rights provided material support for terrorism by simply advocating for Palestinian human rights during the Great March of Return protests. Diala Shamas, a senior staff attorney for the Center for Constitutional Rights, which supported the defendants, said that the Jewish National Fund's effort to, quote, silence and intimidate urgent advocacy for Palestinian rights has been definitively put to rest by the Supreme Court, End quote. In culture and media, the State University System of Florida voted on January 24th to cut sociology from core course requirements Continuing the assault by Republican Governor Ron DeSantis on academic freedom, intellectual pursuit and knowledge. The system's board of governors, which is full of DeSantis appointees and oversees a dozen public universities, approved replacing principles of sociology with a U.S. history course. It followed the State Board of Education's vote last week to do the same for 28 Florida colleges. Following the vote, Heather Gotney, a sociology professor at Fordham University in New York City, told Common Dreams, quote, it's not surprising that people in power would actively suppress efforts to question their power and expose the dynamics underlying it, end quote, she said. She added, this attack on learning is happening when the U.S. is, quote, in such dire need of what sociology has to bring, systematic analysis, understanding, and policy solutions, end quote, she said. And finally, the Free Palestine Movement continues here in D.C. around the U.S. and world. On January 24th, a coalition of organizations held a press conference urging the D.C. Council to pass a resolution calling for an immediate ceasefire in Gaza. On January 25th, Chicago Mayor Brandon Jones called for a ceasefire, and the Minneapolis City Council passed a resolution calling for a ceasefire and a release of all Israeli and Palestinian hostages. Also, the first hearing in that federal lawsuit brought against President Biden, Secretary of State Antony Blinken, and Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin is scheduled to begin as we go to air on January 26th. The lawsuit was filed by the Center for Constitutional Rights on behalf of Palestinian human rights organizations, Palestinians in Gaza, and U.S. citizens with relatives in Gaza. To find or list free Palestine actions in your area, check out ShutItDownForPalestine.org. In the D.C. area, you can also search for the online calendar DMVForPalestine.Doric.IO. And those are our headlines and happenings up next. That decision by the World Court on the ongoing genocide in Gaza. Stay with us. This is On the Ground, ground OnTheGroundShow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Iveram. Well, after more than 110 days of Israel bombing Gaza, during which at least 33,000 Palestinians have been killed or are missing and presumed dead, and at least another 64,000 have been injured, the International Court of Justice announced just before we premiered this episode on January 26th, its decision on emergency provisions requested by South Africa in the genocide case brought against the apartheid state. The court stopped short of of ordering an immediate ceasefire, but did order Israel to take all measures to prevent genocide, including killing, causing serious bodily or mental harm to Palestinians, or deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction in whole or in part. And that includes Israel not imposing measures intended to prevent births within the group. Joining me to discuss the court's decision is on the grounds geopolitical analyst Professor Gerald Horn. Thank you for joining me right away, Gerald, after the court's decision as we premiere this episode on January 26th. Thank you for inviting me. So I wanted to get your first take on the decision.
1: The top line point is that, A, the International Court of Justice in The Hague, part of the United Nations structure, has ruled with binding effect that Israel should take all measures to improve and ameliorate the humanitarian situation in Gaza. On the other hand, the court did not rule that there should be a ceasefire, which is the overwhelming demand from the international community. In other words, the court In biblical terms, sought to split the baby. That is to say, Israel is happy with their non-ruling on ceasefire. The South Africans and the international community should be pleased by the binding orders for the Israelis to improve the humanitarian situation. Although, of course, your audience should wonder, how do you improve the humanitarian situation in Gaza While bombing continues. Having said that, I think it's important to note many of the positive aspects of what we've just witnessed. The court has ruled that it has jurisdiction, that it has the ability and capability to rule on what Israel is doing. This is profoundly important. The court has ruled that within a month, Israel must return to The Hague and submit a detailed report on how they have sought to improve the humanitarian situation in Gaza. The court also has opened the door for more diplomatic and political maneuvering, not only in the international community, but also domestically. That is to say, the anti-war, pro-ceasefire movement can use this decision in order to continue pressuring the Biden administration We also should take note of the fact that with regard to most of their rulings, they were 15 to 2, 16 to 1, an overwhelming consensus with judges hailing not only from Russia, Brazil, Morocco, Jamaica, Uganda, China, uh, but also uh, Japan, United States, and its allies. Uh, This is significant. Now, interestingly, the one dissenter was the judge from Uganda, a black woman, the only black woman on the court. Now, why she dissented, it's unclear. We would have to ask her, for example. Maybe she felt the decision did not go far enough, and therefore she was dissenting in that regard. But it was noteworthy. I should also mention that uh, this ruling reflects the shifting balance of forces internationally. We are accustomed to the United States and Israel thumbing its nose at the international community, thumbing its nose at the United Nations itself. And yet, with all of the focus on this decision, not only globally, but in the United States itself, that kind of thumbing your nose is going to be more difficult to execute Uh, going forward. Uh, This is significant. Also significant is the fact that the court relied heavily upon the damning statements by Israeli officialdoms. For example, Minister Gallant referring to Palestinians as human animals, for example. Perhaps the Israelis will have the compulsion now to watch their words, perhaps even watch their actions. And I should also say that the court determined not only that it had jurisdiction, but that South Africa has standing, that is to say that South Africa had the right to bring this case before the International Court of Justice, that there was in fact a dispute, and they relied heavily in their opinions on statements from United Nations officialdom. Once again, that kind of statement from United Nations officials is the kind of statement that Israel and the United States routinely ignores. And one more point, before the ICJ opinion, sensing that it was under pressure, the Israeli war cabinet supposedly released 30 so-called secret orders, which amount to trying to bolster their case that they're not seeking In intending to perpetrate genocide, but this is, of course, laughable because they released 30 orders. Perhaps there are 30 more that they didn't release. And who is to say that they didn't redact those 30 orders before they were released? But once again, it does reflect the fact that Israel is under pressure, Israel feels compelled to respond, and this is significant going forward.
0: Well, I thought that the decision may have been stronger in terms of I thought it may have indicated a stronger order than just humanitarian relief because of the nine measures requested by South Africa. One that I heard the the court invoke was that Israel shall not kill, cause serious bodily or mental harm to Palestinians, or deliberately inflict on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction in whole or in part. So even though the ceasefire wasn't invoked, it seems to me that they still agreed to this other measure. That was requested by South Africa in terms of splitting the baby, as you said, it seems as though they did do a little bit more than invoke, you know, humanitarian relief.
1: Well, sure. And I think it's important to recognize and acknowledge that this International Court of Justice Opinion in many ways reflects the balance of forces globally at this precise moment as of January 26, 2024. In other words, it's apparent that the United States and Israel cannot proceed in the old way. That is to say, uh, the way the United States did in the 19th century, when it eliminated entire Native American ethnic groups that are now no longer with us. There is a contending bloc comprised heavily of the global majority, oftentimes referred to is the global South, backed by China and Russia. And that is a formidable block. insofar as it includes not only the primary petitioner, speaking of South Africa, but also heavyweights like Brazil as well. And speaking of South Africa, we should not allow it to go unmentioned that it's important that this country, which endured apartheid, endured an apartheid that was supported wholly by the Israeli regime to bring this case forward, it's important for those of us who were involved in the anti-apartheid movement to feel that our actions were not in vain, that our actions were vindicated today. Mm. And it's important to acknowledge as well that this should open the door for other aggrieved parties, including Black Americans, to consider bringing their government, the United States government in this instance, before the International Court of Justice in order to answer for its depredations against Black Americans, including disproportionate implementation of the death penalty, police terror, skyrocketing infant mortality rates, and all the rest.
0: Now, as you know, I spoke to Sam Husseini, a journalist and activist author here in DC, who did a lot to kind of get the ball rolling to encourage the international community to bring this case, right? And in a recent interview I heard with him on the American Exception podcast, he talked about how strong the South African case is, as we've all mentioned, but he expressed disappointment that in the case and in what I heard in the recitation of facts today by the court, that what happened on October 7th is not parsed in any way. Uh, There's been a lot of reporting and investigation since October 7th that indicates that Israel initiated the so-called Hannibal Doctrine and went in with hellfire missiles and other targeting and killed most likely hundreds of people themselves. We know that Hamas recently released a statement that talked about that that their primary mission was to take hostages so that they could a uh, bargain if you will for the thousands of Palestinians in Israeli dungeons uh, most without charge but that they did not engage in this mass killing so and you know you there's even you know quotes from Israeli generals saying that this was a mass Hannibal meaning that the Israeli military deliberately killed their own citizens in order for them not to be taken hostage so Hamas would not be able to use them to bargain. So I did hear that, that kind of disappointment that October 7th is standing alone, unscrutinized in these proceedings.
1: <clears throat> That's a fair point. But on the other hand, I'm not sure if we can expect the International Court of Justice to be more Catholic than the Pope, because in their presentation A few weeks ago, the South Africans were critical of what happened on October 7th, 2023. In fact, I think they used the adjective horrific. And this question of the Hannibal Doctrine and all of the rest, that was not part of the South African presentation. And if it wasn't part of the South African presentation, I'm not sure how it could work its way into the International Court of Justice opinion. On the other hand, we also know that the ICJ, with regard to the Genocide Convention, only resolves disputes between states. Hamas is not a state. Therefore, whatever it is accused of doing on October 7th was not justiciable, to use that legal term. That is to say, it was not properly before the court in any case. So the point that you're making is well taken and certainly is fodder for political and diplomatic bargaining, but is not necessarily on point with regard to the ICJ opinion.
0: Okay. We only have a few minutes left. So what will happen at this point? I know that these orders will go before the UN Security Council.
1: Well, Israel (laughs) must in a month Come back with a detailed report about what they're doing to ameliorate the humanitarian situation. Presumably, if they fall short, which I'm sure they will, uh, there will be further measures taken by the ICJ. Perhaps it will be referred to the United Nations Security Council. Perhaps if the United Nations Security Council is unable to take action because of a Biden administration veto. Uh, There can be language crafted that can bring it before the General Assembly, that is to say 190 plus member states, and that can lead possibly to a resolution with teeth that at least would allow for the possibility of sanctions imposed upon Israel And I should mention another point that we should have mentioned earlier, which is that the South Africans have added as aiders and abettors the United States and the UK. And so possibly, possibly there can be a basis for sanctions against Washington. Now, what that will mean in light of Washington's heavyweight position within the international community is unclear. But once again, uh, we're at an inflection point with regard to the global balance of forces. There's a kind of standoff between these two blocks, the U.S.-led imperialist block and the block of the global majority. And what happened today at The Hague helped to nudge the correlation of forces in our direction.
0: Okay. Well, I, I suppose I, I do want to know how these additional charges or lawsuits against the U.S. and the U.K. will be included in this case?
1: Well, that's unclear. I mean, I think what we're seeing now is what we should realize also with regard to U.S. domestic law. That is to say, law in many ways is just a cover for politics. And so when you ask what this will mean for the United States, it's a process that's unfolding with regard to to delegitimating U.S. imperialism, which Mm -hmm. is a long march. It won't happen today. It may not happen tomorrow, but it's certainly in motion.
0: Okay. Well, I've been speaking to our geopolitical analyst, the prolific author and activist, Professor Gerald Horn. Thank you for joining me today, Gerald.
1: Thank you for inviting me.
0: On the Ground is a totally listener-sponsored, supported show, and we are in need of your support if you rely on the show, if you listen to the show, you come to look forward to what we are able to offer every week. Please support us on Patreon at p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash on the ground show. And you can also give on our website through PayPal or other means if you want to send a check all that information is there but please please support us i want to thank our supporters on patreon so much and for those who are already supporting if you can tell a friend who you know would love to sign up we need the support patreon.com forward slash on the ground show or go to on the ground thank you This is On the Ground, OnTheGroundShow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Iverum. Well, Bigger Than Roe was the theme of a series of women's march rallies held around the United States this month during January 2024, timed to coincide with the 51st anniversary of the Roe v. Wade Supreme Court decision legalizing abortion in the United States. The main march was held in Phoenix, Arizona, a key swing state, And one of nine states with anticipated ballot measures related to abortion rights. While national organizers describe this action as a strategic intervention to galvanize voters for 2024, conveners in DC, the organization Harriet's Wildest Dreams focused on reproductive justice as the right, quote, to safe and voluntary contraception, to become pregnant, carry and bear children in a safe environment free from police violence and environmental toxins, and to affordable and non-judgmental abortion, end quote. Several speakers also call for a ceasefire in Israel's bombing of Gaza. Of the nearly 26,000 confirmed dead, two-thirds have been women and children, including many pregnant women, new mothers, and infants. These remarks begin with activist Tabitha St. Bernard Jacobs and Frankie Sebrun, Program Director for Harriet's Wildest Dreams.
3: The 2024 agenda, and I want to hear you say this with me, is freedom, Freedom. families, Families. future.
4: Future.
3: As we fight together, young and old, we see the urgency in shaping a country that respects our choices. We refuse to go gently into a future where our rights are compromised. As a little girl growing up in Trinidad and Tobago, I I never imagined I would be in a position like this one, in a political moment like this one, speaking about the future of our country, which hangs in the balance. But we all have to do things we never thought we'd do. Take risks we never thought we'd have to take and fight for a democracy that for some of us has always been more of an aspiration than a reality. But we can win. We can win for women, and we can win for us all, because a feminist future is one where we can all thrive. So today, we're marching for abortion rights. We're marching to protect our freedoms. We're marching to support working families. I'm marching for a ceasefire. And we're marching to side with the future. If you're ready to join this fight, get your phones out and text March, M-A-R-C-H, to 44310. That's March, M-A-R-C-H, to 44310. Thank you.
5: When abortion rights are under attack, what do we do? Stand up, fight back! When abortion rights are under attack, what do we do? Stand up, fight back! What do we do? Stand up, fight back! I said, what do we do? Stand up, fight back! Rise up, fight back! And that is exactly why we're here today, y'all, to continue to rise up for our bodily autonomy. Our bodies, our our bodies, Our our bodies. I am a mother of two beautiful children, and that was my choice. Everybody here in this crowd and everybody across this country deserves the same choice. And we are here to demand that choice. When abortion
4: rights are under attack, what do we do? Stand up, fight back. I said, what do we do? Stand up, fight back. What do we do? Our next
5: speaker we're going to hear from is Nene Taylor. She is the executive director of Harriet's
6: Wilder's Dreams. Nene, make some noise. When I say pro, you say choice. Pro. Pro. When I say pro, you say choice. Pro. Pro. When I say hands, you say my body. Hands. Hands off. Hands off. off. Hands Bye, buddy. As y'all say, as I was introduced by my um, program manager, um, Frankie, I'm the executive director of Her is as well as Dreams, I'm also a D.C. native born and raised in Washington, D.C. and southeast where right today black women have no access to health care when it comes to maternity. So, with that being said, how you gonna tell me we don't have a problem when a black woman east of the river can't go somewhere and have a baby. And y'all gonna hear more about that when you hear from a young lady that's from Southeast who actually fight daily for that. But for me today, do y'all know that like one out of four people had an abortion or a miscarriage? So I'm gonna raise my hand because I, I had an abortion. So if you had abortion and you're not the same side, I had abortion, raise your hand. I had abortion. I had a miscarriage, and it wasn't by choice that I had a miscarriage. So because I had a miscarriage, what gives you the right to send me to jail because my body didn't carry that baby, right? What gives you the right to send someone, criminalize someone when a young girl get raped and she don't wanna have her rapist child? So with that being said, I'm not here to talk about me, I'm here to get y'all, because we have partners here called the D.C. Abortion Fund that we literally work with here in D.C. They were supposed to be here today in solidarity, but as you all see, the weather stopped a lot of people, but the weather don't stop our ancestors, so why are we going to stop, right? The people came before us, fought for us. So it's no way that her dreams were going to stop unless we feel it was totally unsafe for y'all. So we want to thank you all for coming out and weathering the storm with us to get the word out that hands off our bodies that this is bigger than Rome. So I'm going to read a message from our D.C. abortion fund so we can move along because we wanna we don't want to keep you out here so too long in this cold because it's real, cold is real. <laughs> So let me get that message for y'all and I'm gonna read y'all what abortion fund sent to us in their absence. Good afternoon. Thank you to Harris Riders Dreams for putting together this rally, for including our local abortion fund in this reproductive justice activism, and for reading this note aloud for us. We're the DC Abortion Fund, and if you live on a metro line, we're your local abortion fund. That means we help pay for abortions, period. Our warm line number is, take out your phones or repeat it after me. The warm line for abortion in D.C., and they're going to help you pay for it, is 202-452-7464. Seven so I'm going to give y'all this number again because this is an important number. If anybody need an abortion in D.C. because we're a sanctuary city and you can't pay for that abortion, you need to call 202 7464. Four. Seven, four, four. We can't be here physically with you today because very genuinely, we're busy funding abortions. We pay for the abortion care of anyone living in or traveling to Washington, D.C. Did y'all hear what I said? Here in D.C., with the abortion funding and, and people like Cursewise Dreams, Will we say abortion by any means necessary, We, if you travel to DC, we got you. So if I said we travel to DC, we got you. Heres dreams, if someone travel to DC, we got you. Right? And to be honest, God, that's some hero (laughs) That's some hero things we doing here. You come from some out of state, we got you. We love the city and are proud to consistently support our neighbors. But state bans, gestational age limits, abortion deserts have long forced abortion seekers from around the country to come our way too. Let us be clear, even under Roe, abortion seekers from all over consistently had to travel to abortion havens to get care, especially for an abortion later in pregnancy. But in the year post-Dobbs, D.C.A.F., D.C. Abortion Fund, services has had to ramp up as we saw even more abortion seekers travel our way from the south, especially from Texas and California. We, they redistributed over 2.6 million to abortion seekers since Dobbs. Let me say that again. D.C. Abortion Fund have spent 2.6 million for abortion seekers to help pay for a woman traveling here who needed help with getting an abortion. And that wasn't even enough for us to fully fund Irving Carter's abortion. So I want y'all to know, y'all, we got to pull into these abortion funds, because even spending $2.6 million, that was not enough. That's not enough. And for the ones out here, y'all know, y'all need a plan B? It's on me. You need a plan B today? See me. You need a plan B? See me. Abortion starts at $500 and goes up to $20,000. While these numbers are differently, they are not because of inflation. The price of abortion actually hasn't changed much since the 80s. Abortions as inaccessible is not a new thing. Abortions have always been out of reach for working people, especially black and brown people. That's why funds like the DC Abortion Fund exist. We are a Band-Aid solution. Did you hear me? The abortion fund is a band-aid solution to a for-profit healthcare system, which leaves behind abortion seekers at every turn. The DC Abortion Fund and our fellow funds around the country have been around since the 90s. We are part of, of an expert network of care navigators who have always ensured that people get the abortions they need without stress about money, travel, time, or anything else. This network has built power through mutual aid and organizing for years, but it took until Roe overturned for the general public to start paying attention to abortion and support funds. If you're here today because you're angry about what happened to Roe, we're here with one ask: Invest and support your local abortion fund. Use your dollars, your time, your clicks to support the people working on the ground to make abortion access. Happen today, everywhere. We applaud you to add mutual aid and harm reduction to your activism and not to focus exclusively on the courts. This Congress won't even save us. Listen, the Congress can't save us. Recognize DC as the first. I'm not going to talk about that because somebody going to talk about recognizing D.C. as the 54th state. And I think we already talked about that, y'all. D.C. is not a state. So while y'all out here and go back home, D.C. is not a state. We need statehood now. So to close this out... We wanted to give you a place to put all that love for your local abortion fund. If you head to MyBodyMyFestival.com right now, that's MyBodyMyFestival.com right now, you'll be able to support our latest biggest fundraiser, which we just launched this morning. A three-day, three-night abortion SS music festival coming to D.C. this May. And all ticket proceeds will fund abortions again. That's mybodymyfestival.com, and we know we'll see you there. Thank you again to the amazing Hurriest Dreams. Thank you to our fellow organizers up on the stage today. Shout out to We Testify. So y'all find out about We Testify too. We testify, tell the stories about abortions, women that had abortions, because. We couldn't fund abortions without abortion storytellers, tackling abortion stigma and leading our way. And thank you and fun abortion today, Ashay.
5: When I say what side are you on, my people, y'all gonna say the choice side, okay? Alright What side are you on my people What side are you on We on the choice side What side are you on my people What side are you on We on the choice side What side are you on my people What side are you on We on the choice side Next we will have Jade Mathis Jade is an attorney A mental health advocate And TV personality Welcome Jade Woo, Make some noise for Jade y'all Good morning, good morning, good morning.
7: So I thought about it. I said, well, what am I going to say? I want to give them an inspiring speech. I thought about what I was going to talk about, and I said, no, you're just going to get up there and keep it real with them. You're going to keep it raw with them, so I'm going to keep it real with y'all. So at the tender, ripe age of 38, I just decided last year, the end of last year, that I was going to start preparing and preserving and reserving my rights and my womb to be a mother one day. But one thing that I noticed during that process is that all the doctors kept telling me after I spent my $30,000, and while I'm filling out the paperwork to decide what I wanted to do with the embryos and the eggs, there kept being little categories that I can check and say, testing, testing, for this admission, for an additional $1,000 or $1,500, I can have the embryos tested for this illness or this disease or this trait or something that the baby could have from a mother who's 38 years old. And I said, as a patient, this looks awesome, right? As a patient, this looks progressive in healthcare. But as a civil rights attorney and a human being, I said, this looks discriminatory because what it tells me is that It disproportionately affects, Roe v. Wade disproportionately affects those in marginalized communities, women of color, women who are young, women who are in rural areas, women who are suffering from poverty, women who are less fortunate. But if you can pay, you can decide if you want to have a healthy baby or not. If you can pay, you can decide if you want to have a baby who may be defective or not. And what that also says to me is that we've always been told we live in the land of the free, right? In the home of the brave. Well, now that that freedom is subjective and relative based on who's in office, I employ you all to keep being brave. And I thank you for being brave and showing up here in 20-degree weather to fight for the rights of others. So continue to use your voice to make sure that in the next months and years and generations to come, women don't have to continue to look over their shoulders and worry about if their wombs are going to be policed based on who's voted or who's not voted into office. Thank you all.
5: All right, y'all. Here we go. So what I want y'all to also know is that right now, if a woman in Southeast DC gets pregnant, there is nowhere for her to have her baby east of the river where she lives. That's what I want y'all to know. So this is also a maternal health issue. And black women are four times as likely to die during childbirth. And we're gonna keep echoing this message. Our bodies, are choices. But also, what does that choice mean when you don't have access? What does that mean? Okay, next up, I wanna call up Jamila White. Let's make some noise for for Jamila. Let me give her her proper accolades. Jamila is an ANC commissioner here in Washington, D.C. She is from D.C., born and raised, and she about to tell you right now about what it means to be black in the intersections of abortion access. Make some noise for Jamila, y'all.
2: Good afternoon, everybody. Happy MLK week. Can we get some noise? I know it's cold out here. How are you all doing? I am Jamila White. I'm so honored to be with you all. I am a native of the DMV, not raised and born in DC, though my dad moved here in the early 90s. I call this my second home. But I'm here to tell you all my story. About a month before my 32nd birthday, I was diagnosed with thyroid cancer and I started a two-year treatment journey that included radiation. During this journey, I was required to take several pregnancy tests to continue treatment, as treatment is unallowed for anyone who is pregnant. (sighs) Sorry, y'all, this is the first time I ever told this story. Towards the end of, towards the last treatment, to my surprise, one pregnancy test came back positive. I was extremely surprised, petrified, whatever that word is, because I was extremely careful not to get pregnant and use preventative methods. At that moment, I was given a choice by my medical team. If I was to continue my cancer treatment, I had to make a choice whether to terminate the pregnancy. At that moment, I chose to terminate the pregnancy and continue with cancer treatment. And because at that time, abortion access was easily accessible to me, And I've never told more than four people this story. No more than four people know I had to make that choice because of the stigma attached. So more than anything, this was my story of choice. That I had the ability and privilege of choosing myself in one of the most challenging times in my very young life. And I want every woman to have the ability to make that choice. To be able to choose for their self, their well-being in their life and that choice should not be limited based on your race, socioeconomic status, or your zip code. And sadly, in our nation's capital, this is the reality for so many black women and birthers living east of the Anacostia River. A history of local and federal policies and programs has created a city that is segregated where the factors are beyond your control the ability to choose. Nearly half of black Washingtonians live in a medically underserved area, which significantly contribute to the current health outcomes and disparities for black Washingtonians, especially those of us living east of the river where the infant mortality rate is six times higher than the district average. I'm going to repeat that. Black women living east of the Anacostia River's infant mortality rate is six times higher than the district's average. Shame. Shame. For the 7th richest city in the world, Ward 7 and 8 residents, which is predominantly black, have to travel across the river or into another state to seek medical attention, while residents who live in predominantly white, wealthier areas can walk down the street to seek medical attention and get their needs met. Presently, black birthers still have to cross the river, as has been mentioned, for full OGBYN services. The 2020 maternity mortality report revealed that despite black women only making up about half the births in the district, we account for 90% of the deaths, 70% of those are black women living east of the Anacostia River. I cannot repeat this and I will not stop repeating this. The social and economic district investment reflected in the decades of structural racism and anti-blackness. Well, this is the reality for so many of us and the root cause of most of the social and economic disparities that we see today. This is the first time I've told you all that I'm sharing my cancer story public as well as my abortion story. Because both wow. cancer and abortion care is health care. And it's time to destigmatize and acknowledge that abortion is not only reproductive justice, it is racial justice. Black women, our bodies, have been controlled, weaponized, and criminalized since the first interactions with European enslavers, from Sarah Bartlett to A. Lack to us. We are taking back our bodies, we are owning the ability to make choices for ourselves, and we are fighting for every woman to be able to make that choice for herself. I thank you, I stand in solidarity, and we call for a
5: ceasefire. I don't know about y'all, but what we can say is, your laws ain't you can't even find the clip. Your laws ain't Cause you can't even find the clip, and what, and what y'all need to know is that these people who are making choices about our bodies don't even know where it's set, baby.
4: Okay? <laughs> so say <laughs> so our body, our choice, our body, our, choice. our body, our, choice. our body. Our choice.
5: We have one more amazing speaker for y'all today before we march. Before we go out here and and make our voices heard, please, I cannot give enough accolades for this wonderful, wonderful woman. Please make some noise for Kiana Johnson, who is the executive director of Life After Release and co-conductor with Harriet's Wildest Dreams. Kiana! My body!
8: My body! My body! Hey y'all, my name is Kiana and I am the founder and executive director of Life After Release. I'm also a co-conductor with Harriet Wilder's Dreams. And I'm a mother of two sons and I'm also a woman that had abortions myself. My sons were my choice, my abortions were also my choice. Right? <laughs> and what I'm here to say is that to criminalize abortions is a shame. To criminalize abortions is a shame, right? It is our body, our, our body, toy. our body, our, our body. Our our body. Our oh, you're not gonna disrupt my speech. You better get on out of here with that. <laughs> so yes. So I'm also a formerly incarcerated woman. And I'm here to tell you to make abortions illegal is something that is a shame. It's something that we should not be doing, right? I was born in D.C., but I was raised in Prince George's County, Maryland. I live in Maryland. And Maryland has on the ballot this year where we want to make sure that we put abortion rights and put it inside of our Maryland Constitution. So yes, yes, right? So the state of Maryland is getting it right. We want to become a sanctuary state so that we can continue to ensure that women have abortion safely and that women are allowed to do so and be able to make that choice. We cannot and we will not take away the choice for women to choose whether or not they want to bring a life into this world for whatever reasons that may be. That is their body and their choice. And so if you live in Maryland, as do I, I encourage you that when you go to the ballot in 2024 that you make sure that your voice is heard. Because we're going to march today, but it is more than marching. We got work to do. Say, we have work to do. We have work to do. do.
4: do. So to all of
8: my Marylanders, abortion and reproductive rights is on the ballot. Make sure that you stand up. At the ballot and make the choice that Marylanders, as such myself, is able to make the choice whether or not they want to bring a life into this world. My body. My, my body. My, my body. My Thank y'all.
4: When abortion rights are under attack, what do we do? When abortion rights are under attack, what do we do? when women's rights.
5: y'all we are bigger together we can drown out the noise because we are here
4: because our body our choice and no one can take that away from us no one not the courts not not the go-
5: Sing out, y'all. I'm I'm gonna invite Mickey to close us out, and then we're gonna march and make our voices heard because it's our body, our choice. Bigger than Row,
4: all right, y'all. Thank
9: you for coming out. Give a round of applause. this last night. It was cold. Ain't nobody want to be out here in the cold, but we know our bodily autonomy is under attack. It don't matter. By any means necessary, we will fight back. And we're not just going to fight against Roe v. Wade. We're not just going to fight about what's happening at the federal, sta- federal level. We also have to focus on our state and local, right? Because D.C. Council is right here. And for people that live in D.C., We gotta focus on what's happening here, too. We gotta fight locally, but think globally. So we have a call to action for y'all living in D.C., for y'all right here. They named the text number earlier, but we have demands. We have demands of our local D.C. Council. We have demands of Congress, and we need y'all to sign on. So I'm gonna repeat the number, right? because the attacks on abortion access are rooted in the legacy of white supremacy and the desire to control the reproduction of black women and birthing people and all people of color specifically right so i want y'all to pull out your phones pull out your phone right now i want to see y'all pulling out your phones i'm going to tell you the number and you're going to text choice to this number and it's going to send you a link to sign on to a local petition where we are making those demands. We have a thousand signatures so far, but that is not enough. Once you text this number, I want you to share it with five friends as well. Are you ready? I want you to text CHOICE to the number 833-454-1214. Did you get it? I'm gonna repeat it one more time. 833 454 1214. Text choice. Sign that petition. Read those demands. Find out how you can plug in to how we are fighting right here in the local level. Now, I also got a question for y'all. Are y'all ready to march? Y'all want to march? All right, because I was going to give y'all the choice. If y'all ain't want to march, we could have done, you know. But y'all want to march. Let's get it. And if anybody, it's a plan B. Come see me.
0: And Kiana Johnson of Life After Release in Maryland and Frankie Sebron of Harrod's Wildest Dreams here in DC will have the last word on today's show as they extended their activism around reproductive rights to the mothers, children, and families in Gaza at the Women's March 2024 Bigger Than Row. And the DC contingent was held on Freedom Plaza in Northwest D.C. on January 20th. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, voices of resistance from the nation's capital on more than two dozen stations on the Pacifica Radio Network. You can listen to all of our shows on the website we maintain, onthegroundshow.org. D.C. audience, you can check out our February 2nd show on our website or on our podcast. If you like the show, let us know by liking us on Facebook or X Twitter or by supporting us on patreon.com forward slash on the ground show. You can also write us at contact at on the ground And i link to every show on my Instagram page, which is Esther underscore Averum. I V like Victor E R E M like Mary. Our podcast is on the ground with Esther Averum. And that's on all your podcast platforms, including Spotify, Stitcher, Android, Google, and all the platforms. The music we play this hour included Cloud Blue by Isaiah Roussan, No No by George Howard, and our theme music is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. I'm Esther Averam. Until next time, take good care and keep raising your voice. Peace.